is Brie Castellini. I used to be a spy. My name is Chris Cherry. I used to not understand the 90s. And this is Burn Notice, a weekly rewatch of a non-90s USA television masterpiece, Burn Notice, about Michael Weston, a spy. Throughout this podcast, we will be rating each episode on whether it is A, an episode of television, B, a great episode of television, or C, a great episode of Burn Notice. If you want to get in touch with us for any reason other than criticism, which we will never accept under any circumstances, check the episode notes for our contact info. Look at that shorter intro. I you felt shortened like it. I felt like it was time. Like yeah. we, we already shortened it after I think season one when we stopped going into depth about like how we rate the episode. Exactly. And now I'm like, if they want to get in contact with us, it's always in the episode notes. Exactly. And it's always like, and there's a sort of symmetry to that. Mm-hmm. Like going into the last season. Exactly. The changing last it again. season. We're in the last season. We're the season. last season of Burn Notice, you guys. I feel like there's a tweet out there that alleges that I've seen at least some of this season before. I have, like this truly, I have no memory of I this. I have no memory of this. I, as far as I am concerned, I have never seen this before. And I have had a lot of reactions. I have had a lot of reactions too. I have more reactions to next week. Oh, episode. we'll get to next week next week. But my we point is... We'll get to next week. <laughs> next week my point is that i don't have quite as much of an emotional reaction to this episode yeah no this is the thing as we talk about all the time we record two in a row together Mm -hmm. and i was literally i just watched next week Mm -hmm. and i was like watching it and i was like i don't want to talk about this episode that we that we're going to record right now i just want to talk about (laughs) next week's like well luckily you have a heart out so we we can speed run through this one uh we do because our listeners don't matter it's just about us and what we want to talk about which is not really this episode but really quickly you understand the 90s now. oh yeah i've been watching a lot of paul verhoeven movies and lately for the first time like i'd seen total recall but i hadn't really seen robocop and i hadn't seen basic instinct you hadn't really seen robocop Uh, what is you hadn't really seen robocop mean like so you see bits and pieces on TV, like you've seen section, like I've seen like okay, bits of I see, RoboCop. I, I haven't seen all of RoboCop. I have not sit down and was like, it's time to watch RoboCop. <laughs> this is Christine's special time to watch RoboCop. <laughs> <laughs> this is Christine's RoboCop time. <laughs> it's so funny too, because like after that, I like, I wa- I've seen Total Recall. So I sit down and I watch ba- Basic Instinct, partially because my roommates are out of town. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I can, I have the place to myself. I'm going to watch the erotic thriller. Did you I use mean, we'll be the projector or is that connected um, to their stuff? It's a hassle. Got and it. I honestly like... You didn't want to see Sharon Stone's vagina on a projector screen? Here's the thing. What kind of I, lesbian are you? Here's what I will say <laughs> about... A, I don't like watching movies on projectors unless it's so high quality that it looks fine because even good projectors home projectors look really muddy. Yeah, I find... they're not as sharp, for sure. Exactly. And I would rather look at a smaller screen that's a little sharper. Mm-hmm. You know, especially color. Like, I care a lot about color in movies. Mm-hmm. And so, like, watching on a home projector screen, like, really fucks with color. Yeah. Really fucks with, like... Even if you mess with the settings, like, there's yeah. just a... Yeah, muddy is a good way to Exactly. It. And I don't care for that at all. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's how I feel about like if I'm watching something on a TV that is too small, but I can sit on a more comfortable couch. Allegedly, I'd rather watch it just on my laptop on like a chair or bed. Like Quinn hates that, but I'm like, if the TV isn't gonna be like statistically significantly bigger than a laptop screen, like relative to how far away I am, I'd rather be close so I can squint with my stupid bad eyesight at like whatever's on the computer screen uh, in the show, you know, or whatever. I will say that I don't quite agree with because it's a very psychological thing. Mm -hmm. When you have something on the TV, it's like very different because if you have something on your laptop... Mm -hmm. I'm still on a laptop, so it feels more like work. It's it's not even that it feels more like work. It's that like... It's so easy to like very quickly go to like another tab or very quickly like. That's what I uh, like about I it. I know. And I know. It, and that's why I'm bad at watching movies at home because like I'm almost never fully committed to watching the movie. But like it's a thing of even if I have my phone or have my laptop, but I have another screen going, mm-hmm. it feels different than like. I'm looking, I'm quickly looking away from the screen Mm -hmm. to look at my phone as opposed to like doing hand motions to move away from like, I'm, 
I'm looking away from the movie. I'm not pushing the movie away from me. Sure. That's a very big psychological difference to me for some reason. I, I, I and, can respect that. Okay, so you understand the 90s now. Yeah, no, I, I kind of under... I had underrated how much of 90s aesthetic was taken straight from Paul Verhoeven and kind of Basic Instinct in particular. Okay. Like, I also rewatched the Tim Burton Batman movies pretty recently. And I can make a decent argument that, like, Batman 89 and, like, Total Recall and Basic Instinct basically invent 90s aesthetic. And what Um, is... How do you define 90s aesthetic? It's very, like... There's kind of a camp to it. There's a heightenedness to it, mm-hmm. and like there's like not a lot of subtlety to it, but like very kind of straightforward but heightened. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, I was not conscious for most of the '90s. I was a small child for most of the '90s. I turned ten in '98. God, I turned uh, six in '98. Yeah, that's because I am baby. Yeah. I am unfortunately now 30, though. You're so now I, 30. I can't say, and I'm still in my 20s. Exactly. You can't say that <laughs> my anymore. My life is over. Oh, my God. But no. Um, so a grounded heightenedness? But no, not a groundedness. I would say, like, there was an idea that the 90s was kind of an irony decade. Mm-hmm. And that's true. But also, like, not really, actually. Was it, like, an earnest heightenedness? There's an earnest heightenedness. It's, like, retro, like, when you look back, like, retroactively, it is ironic because of, like, well, the lens we're looking I at mean, it, no, but at the time it was much more earnest. Well, no, because people talked a lot at the time about how ironic it was, but it was, like, postmodernism at this point was, like, so new that, like, no one was, like, used to it. Mm-hmm. And so, like... Because then 90s movies are movies that only could have been made in the 90s, like, in between The Fall of the Berlin Wall and 9-11. Like, because like, the 90s is such a specific time. Okay. Wherein, like, we thought it was the end of history. We thought that, like, war was basically over. Like, we had the Persian Gulf. And, like, this was all obviously not true. But, like, it felt for a moment like all problems were solved. And everything we were just living now. Mm-hmm. It was just like we had like in nineteen when the world when the Berlin Wall fell, America won the game, and now we're in free play. Mm-hmm. You know that in that way, like, and so you have all of these movies that have this in retrospect kind of childlikeness to them. Of like we're safe, I've, we're safe, and characters have a lot of interiority, but like a little bit. Less so, I don't know, there's, like, less self-awareness to them you, than you might think. Like, 90s movies felt very ironic and self-aware at the time, but that became such the norm after the 90s. Mm-hmm. Like, to the extent to which, like, you watch a 90s movie now and think, like, this is so much less self-aware than a Marvel movie. This is mm-hmm. so much, like... It's, it's almost more, more charming in retrospect. It's, yes, exactly. And it's really fascinating. And, like, and heightened. Where, like, in the 90s, we wanted to see, like, really big things, like, really broad stuff. And, like, that's Paul Verhoeven, who does, like, the most biggest, broadest, extreme version of sex and violence that you ever saw in your life. That's, like, has nothing to do with, like, real life at all. There's mm-hmm. not... 90s movies are in no way grounded. Okay. At all. They're all... They take place... They're in, all larger like, than life. They're all larger in life. They take place in the land of movies. They're, it's like... Peak magic of Hollywood okay. is the 90s, where, like, everything feels a little bit fake, but it's all gorgeous and colorful. And and this has uh, been Christine's audition for Blank Check. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway. But what we should talk about yeah. is burn notice. <laughs> uh, yeah. So this is, this is the beginning of the end, friends. I feel very nostalgic already, you know? I'm like... I'm ready for it to be over, but I'm also, you know, it's a bittersweet thing. I'll miss talking about Burn Notice so regularly. I'll miss having this stupid show Yeah. to like, you know, as a, I, I've come back around from resenting having to watch it every week to being kind of excited to. Yeah. No, here's the thing too, that I think helps that huh. is that, and we kind of talked at, earlier about how like we really want to talk about next week or whatever. Mm-hmm. And we don't want to talk about this episode, but this episode is really entertaining. Yeah, like, totally. I watched this episode and got excited. Mm-hmm. Like, I, the two episodes that we watched for this week and next week, 
made me much more excited for this season than anything else had. Mm-hmm. There's like a focus to the the show now mm-hmm. that there hasn't been in a while that like you get a lot in like final seasons like this where they probably know it's the final season. Mm-hmm. They've got like a reduced order. They know what they're doing. And I, I kept thinking about watching this episode, like how like how far the show has come from like the show that like had a season two opener the season two opener of this show. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Where like it's so like like they, case, they still like client of the weeky mm-hmm. back then. It's like I do miss a little bit of the client of the weeky and I worry that this final season's gonna have fewer and fewer great episodes of burn notice because what I did notice it from the the opening of this season, fewer spy tips overall. Mm-hmm. And also he's not ever gonna be as an alias. He's himself. Yeah. You know. Well, I don't know. Again, he has become the alias. It's true. And that's been true for a while. We haven't had an alias in a while. We have not, really. I'm curious to see how much, how serialized this season is. Mm-hmm. Me too. Because, like, yeah, I wonder how long. Okay, let's talk about the episode and we yeah. can get to, like, the specifics of where Michael Weston is at geographically, emotionally. Yeah. So this is season seven, episode one. Ugh. Called New Deal, The Green New Deal. Uh, it aired June 6, 2013. It was written by Big Daddy and directed by Burn Notice Podcast Twitter follower Stephen Sergic. Uh, according to IMDb, the description looks of this great. Episode, looks great, Stephen. Like, genuinely, I was it, watching it, it, I was like, this looks really good. You're really good at this. Like, literally, before I knew it was Stephen Sergic, I watched the opening sequence and I was like, I bet our boy Steve did this. I bet this is our boy Steve. And it was. Um, and then next week was directed. Um, Yeah, we'll talk about next week next week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So IMDb. Michael must deal with a terrorist who recruits him to steal hardware from the Department of Defense. Sam and Jesse discover Michael's life might be in danger. Michael's life? Michael's life. In danger? From a terrorist? Who'd have thunk it? Who'd have thunk it? Let's get into the weeds. So we start with Michael, who is beardless. uh, No, not beardless. Michael is bearded, shirtless, and ripped in the Dominican Republic, washing blood off his hands and face in a series of long, lovingly close-up shots that would make Henry Cavill blush. (laughs) Really good. No, it looks gorgeous. (laughs) It looks fucking great. Like, I will say this. I think Jeffrey Donovan... Lovely man, has a little bit of a weird chest, mm-hmm. but it's so lovingly photographed. It really is. Like, it's this is so... a very flattering opening scene. Because, like, he always looks his best when he's kind of dirty. Like, we yeah. mentioned this in The Fall of Sam Axe all the, those years ago when he had a little bit of scruff. But, like, he's got scruff again, and he's kind of dirty. Yeah. And he's no, got he's got a, got a full-on beard now. It's not like a thick beard, Mm-mm. but it's not just scruff either. No, it's no. like... But it... It fucking looks good. It looks good. It looks really good. He's hanging out in the Dominican Republic. Mm-hmm. Steven Sergic is really like laying thick the um exotic other third world filter for Dominican Republic, which mm-hmm. is like not great. I mean, I don't like, I don't know how much of it is I mean there it's a you can see it a little bit more in the later Dominican Republic scenes, but there I think there's also like he is in a seedy underground boxing ring and I think he's doing more like fight club grime. For I the mean, purposes of that aesthetic. I will say the the fight scene is very fight club. It, mm-hmm. That's that kind of grind. But also, like, it opens and, like, it's so weird because it's, like, a, the Dominican Republic. But we open on the Dominican Republic and there's, like, a woman, like, uvulating. Like, they're kind of playing Middle East music. Yeah. It's, I like, mean, it's the it's other ex- country filter. Exactly. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's, it's like, like, all very warm tones and, like, It's exotics. It's very exoticizing everything. It's, like, yeah. yeah. It's 2013. Like, that's less okay now, y'all. It is. But also, here's the thing. I would say that they're doing this more than even they do on Burn Notice because this episode is so stylishly shot. Mm-hmm. Like, one of the things that I'm getting from watching This Week and Next Week is it almost feels like we're watching Burn Notice the movie. Hmm. You know what I mean? I can see that. Yeah, as like a you know the their finale was Firefly esque or the uh, what was what was the Firefly movie? Serenity. Serenity. Yeah, yeah. it's almost their version of Serenity. Exactly. It kind of is, mm-hmm. and I'm cool with that. It's good, but it looks amazing. Like mm-hmm. it looks. This episode and next week looks so much better than the Fall of Sam Axe. I mean, yeah. I mean, but Fall of Sam Axe was a made-for-TV movie that was part of a contractual agreement that was basically an excuse for all of them to go on vacation together and have a good time. This is true. And you know what? Fucking more power to them. I would love to have the money to go on vacation and have a good time with my friends and make a silly little action movie that doesn't ultimately make a lot of sense. No, totally. It's just, I think it's funny, like, 
how much more this looks like burned notice to the movie than the time that they made a movie. Yeah, for sure. For sure, for sure, for sure. So honestly, the first like third of this episode is uh, intercut between Michael getting his ass handed to him at Fight Club and cutting back to nine months ago um, when he's getting his assignment from the CIA that ultimately sprung all of his friends and family from prison. Um, so uh, before before we, we get into the details of that, though, because that's what, like all this is and we'll, we'll talk about it in a second. The one thing that was uh, a little jarring in the fight scene when like the very beginning of the fight scene, when he's like, it seems sort of like allowing himself to get his ass kicked because Mm -hmm. Michael Weston's whole alias of himself at this point is like burnout Michael Weston. (laughs) So he's supposed to be a little sloppy and he gets punched out and in mixed into the Foley of him getting punched out. And I don't know if you noticed this was a windows PC error sound. Did you notice that? I did not notice this. It's entirely possible like, I don't know what you're talking about right now. It's also possible that I heard it and assumed that my computer did something. Yeah, okay, hang on, hang on. This is this is the sound that was mixed into a punch. Like, it's entirely possible that I heard that and assumed my computer did that. Mm-hmm. Like, I have a I have a Windows computer. Like, I might have just... It took me, like, no joke, like, almost five minutes to track down the exact sound, because I was like, I know I just heard a Windows PC error, like, noise, but I couldn't figure out the right combination of keywords to get me that clip, and then I found it, and I was like, I have to put this in the episode notes, or I'm not gonna remember. But yeah, it was very, it's the only, it's only once. There was only, like, one, I think, big punch out where it's used, but it's, like, mixed in with, you know, classic action movie punch sound effects, which are, of course, not actual punch sound effects. Actual punching does not sound very interesting which we found out during Brains, when we were like, this doesn't sound like fucking anything. I'm increasingly of the opinion that, like, modern film groundedness is a scourge and it must die. Yes, I agree. I agree. Let's go back to the 90s. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So, yeah, so that that just, that threw me for a little while and made me go on a slight detour before coming back to the episode. But back to the episode. I don't actually, do you, did you pick up this dude's name? Because I genuinely don't think I have it after two episodes. Okay, so. Did they ever say it? I think they probably said it once. I don't remember. I was, in my notes, I was just calling him Michael's boss. Yeah, I was calling him his handler. Or like, whatever. And then I had the burn notice wiki open. Okay. And like saw his name in that. And apparently it is Agent Strong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, apparently it's Agent Strong. Yeah, Andrew Strong. Played Andrew by, Strong. Played by Jack Coleman, aka Caroline's homophobic gay dad from the Vampire Diaries, and also the dad of the cheerleader in need of saving to save the world in Heroes, which is relevant because the terrorist that Michael has been sent down to DR to work with is also from Heroes, played by Adrian Passar. Passar. He played um, Nathan Petrelli in Heroes. That's the name I've heard before. I don't recognize him, mm-hmm. but I recognize the name. He's been, uh, well, his Heroes was his, like, big thing. And then he's, yeah. like, he's got, like, short arcs in other shows like this. Like, he's in a show, I don't remember which one. It's in a procedural, though. And he has, like, a four or five episode arc where he's, like, kind of, he's not a bad guy, but he is an overly antagonistic government agent. It's a real, real thick-necked man. He's very thick-necked. He plays Milo Ventimiglia's older brother in Heroes. Yeah, he's like, he's built like a cartoon character. Mm-hmm. And I had to look it up. Heroes was apparently also something that came out in 2006, uh, or either either 2006 or 2008. So they're they're done with Heroes. And it is interesting that they're both in this episode together. Interesting. Because I think actually the <laughs> Agent Strong, his daughter, his, his adoptive daughter in Heroes, is Adrian Pastar's actual daughter in the show. Like, I think it comes out that Adrian Pastar has a daughter who... Agent Strong is raising. Got it. <laughs> so they're like very tangential, like not even tangentially related in Heroes, and they happen to both be in this arc, which I just, I found interesting. That but is interesting. Good for them. So yeah, basically Michael has to, tr- uh, so Michael knows Nathan Petrelli, whose name is Burke, I think. We eventually learn the terrorist's name is Burke. That's yeah. who Michael has been sent to DR to get recruited by. And apparently they have history, and that's why Michael Weston is the only man that can do this. Is, like, they have history together. And also, like, Michael is in such a bad place right now that it is believable that he might 
actually not be uh, planned. Mm-hmm. And, like, just because, like, Michael's situation is so bad. Yeah, and has become, like, a FBI, CIA most wanted, that if they use the fact that he is a lot to, you know, to push him down to DR, the terrorists will be like, oh, Michael Weston's for real this time. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, so that's that's the plan. And and this is all done in intercutting between Michael getting his his details and Michael being beat up in a club while Irk watches from afar. And um I think Michael ends up winning the fight, ultimately. Uh oh yeah, he 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 finally gets the upper hand and then presumably murders his opponent. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> while the terrorist watches and we see like a splat of blood hit Michael Wesson in, in his haunted eyes. Yeah, like the voiceover explains like some like basically it's like sometimes you gotta do what you gotta do. Yeah, and the the voice I actually don't think there's voiceover until the next scene. And the next scene no, Oh voice- no, there is. There is, it, there is. Uh, but and, and he basically is like, you know, being undercover is a lot because, you know, if, if you have to pretend to be an alcoholic burnout version of yourself, sometimes you just become it. <laughs> you just have to hope that there's enough of you left when you're, you know, when you need to turn back into your real self uh, that you can salvage things. Michael's like, be careful who you pretend to be because that might be what you really are. Kurt Vonnegut. <laughs> so that's the cold open uh, as Burke watches him from afar. Presumably Michael has been down here a while. So then we get a sorrowful montage post cold open of Michael Weston playing alcoholic burnout Michael Weston um, to try and really sell his cover. And in the end, something really heartbreaking happens at the very end of this montage where some brutes come up to him. He... We, we learn, this is how we really establish that shit is real. Mm-hmm. Things are different. Things are not the same. This is not your daddy's burnout. No, because Michael Weston speaks Spanish now. Here's the thing. I was proud of him. I was devastated. No, like other people are supposed I knew to speak was, Spanish for him. Here's the thing: I knew, like going in, he was in the Dominican Republic for like a like, long time. A long time. I was like, there's no way he doesn't speak Spanish now. Mm-hmm. Like I'm just at this point, I'm like, I want to hear him do it. I was, I was proud of him. I was proud of her boy. I wanted, I wanted. Here's what I wanted: I wanted Burke to make a comment about it, where he's like, I thought you didn't speak Spanish. Like, a lot of things have changed, Burke. <laughs> no, I think, like, for all, like, me talking about loving campiness, I actually do really like how underplayed it is. That's but they fair. don't do Maybe a Maybe once thing. he's back in Miami full-time and, like, they, they'll have a, a thing with a, like, uh, fucking Alfredo Barrios Jr. will write us an episode about him hunting down a, a Hispanic drug lord and Michael can talk, sp- speak Spanish and his friends can be like, excuse me. <laughs> Like, no, it's a thing of, like, this episode opened with him, like, in this brutal fight. Mm-hmm. It's literally kind of, it's almost saying, like, we, we're we not doing the joke because, like, shit's shit is real. real. Now. Yeah. yeah, shit's real now. We're, like, we're, like, a slightly higher stakes, more heightened, like, bigger, more serious show now. Like, we're, like... I'm a little sad about it. Yeah, no, I get it. We get some spark back next week, but we'll talk about next week next week. No, but, like, I will also say, like, we talked about Fight Club a lot. I do also think there's a lot of Batman Begins Mm -hmm. in Michael right now. Right. That's another scene where, like, movie where he's just, like, fighting people and kind of bearded and... Mm -hmm. Yeah, like, that's, that's another thing that's on people's minds, I think, and then, like, in this episode. Sure. Probably. Yeah. Um, so Burke has a little conversation with Michael and is like, so since you seem to be in pretty dire straits and because despite that, I know that you're Michael Weston, I may be interested in working together, but mm, you seem like a me- like even more of a mess than... He says, are you Mark Knopfler, are you Mark Knopfler because you look like you're in dire straits? <laughs> Great. Take two of the audition for Blink Check. So, yeah. So basically, Burke is like, I believe, I mostly believe that you are just a burnout now. I am concerned, however, that you're too much of a burnout. Uh, And Michael's like, no, let me work for you. And he's like, hmm, I don't know. So then Michael goes and meets with his CIA handler, uh, (laughs) 
the strong man, strong man, <laughs> strong, strong man, CIA handler. And he, the strong man is like, mm, I think you might be selling your, your damaged goods too hard. And Michael's like, no, he's got to believe that this is it for me. He's got to believe that I've hit rock bottom. Otherwise he won't trust me. And then Burke reminds him that him closing this case is what his friend's release was contingent on. And Michael's like, I'm going to get her done. I promise. Just fucking trust me, dude. And Strong's like, blah, 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 blah. so Michael has back to his apartment where he has rigged a low tech security system that I thought was actually quite clever. And it alerts him that there is a possible home invasion. So he breaks into his apartment the back way only to find Burke eating a yogurt. Our first yogurt in no joke. I counted 13 episodes. It's been 13 episodes and somebody has eaten or talked about a or sh- shown a yogurt on screen on Burn Notice. That's the length of this season. It is the length of this season. And I'm like, even if this is the only one we get, and I'm sure it won't be. It feels like coming home. No, I think, like, I'm willing to bet the second to last episode is yogurt heavy. (laughs) Or, like, the third to last episode. Mm -hmm. Like, there will be an episode towards the end where they just go to a yogurt factory. (laughs) And Michael falls into a vat of radioactive yogurt and becomes, like, a Superman. (laughs) Yeah, no, totally. Um, Michael Horowitz will write it and they'll be great. Maybe he'll be, like, Sandman, but instead of sand, he's made of yogurt. Exactly, he's Yogurt Man. (laughs) Maybe that should be our spec. Michael becomes Yogurt Man. And then uh, it's like, and that makes it our Halloween episode. And then at the end, it's, he wakes up and it was all a dream. Right. <laughs> uh, no. And then like, no, no. And then he wakes up. It was all a dream. He wakes up next to Fee and is like, what's wrong? It's like, oh, it's just a bad dream. And she's like, do you want some yogurt? And he's like, I don't know. I don't know if I can do it anymore. And there's a beat and it's like, yeah, yeah, I can't. <laughs> I can't stay mad at you, yogurt. And then he takes a bite, and then we move the camera over, and Fee is just a pile of yogurt. <laughs> oh, my oh my god! So stupid. Okay. Anyways. Oh my god. But yeah, so so Burke is eating a yogurt. His goon is kind of tossing the place to check out Michael's story. And Burke agrees to hire him on like a trial basis on one condition, which is he has to go cold turkey on the drinking. He can't drink or Burke will not hire him. And this is probably going to work out well so that Michael is not an alcoholic by the time he, you know, comes out of this. So all, all's well that ends well. Back in Miami, finally, about like 20 minutes into the episode, with iMovie pre-made transitions of a bunch of women's boobs and butts, uh-huh. we find Sam Axe. There's like a lot of like pushes in and like crossfades. Oh, and... Yeah, and there, there's like a handful of transitions where it's like the screen gets smaller yeah. to become the next screen. And it's like it's full season one burn notice nonsense. And you know what? I did feel a little flutter. I felt like, a little flutter. Yeah, no, it's like the, it's almost like the opening title sequence of Burn Notice the movie. Of like, <laughs> if like it was a real James Bond movie, like just some, some oh, real, yeah. like, like a real James Bond song, like singing about Burn Notice. <laughs> They should just do like do like a Weird Al version of a James Bond like song. So yeah, as we as we do all of our James Bond iMovie transitions of ladies' boobs and butts, we find Sam Axe planning a top secret espionage party of some kind for Elsa by the pool of her hotel, um, and then a guy who he's planning this super secret party with, you know, really hamming it up, is like, hey, somebody's here asking about Michael Weston, and he says that you should come meet him, and Sam is like, oh yeah, okay. And so this guy introduces himself as, like, a French intelligence officer, and they're like, we know Michael Weston's in the Dominican Republic. Is he there officially or not? And I'm watching this scene, and I'm like, is it that the actor is not doing a very good French accent? Mm -hmm. Or is it that the character is not doing a very good French accent? It turns out it's the character. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, so so this French, this allegedly French intelligence officer is like, is Michael Weston still in the CIA? And Bruce Campbell's like, I don't know. I've never, I don't, I don't know anything. But you know, you know who, and he's like, well, have you talked to Langley? Like you, I'm sure you have 
connections to other intelligence officers. And they're like, honestly, we haven't got very far. And he's like, well, what about Henri LaBelle? Henri LaBelle, like, loves Langley. They love him there. Did you talk to Henri? And the French intelligence guy is like, oh, yeah, Henri tried his best. And Sam gives him this little look. And he's like, there is no Henri LaBelle, is there? In, like, a different accent. And so there's a little bit of a back and forth. But as the accent is dropped, so is a knife to Sam's femoral artery. And the guy's like, I'm not going to answer any more questions unless you want to be fucking bleeding from your dingaling. Let me go. And so <laughs> Sam lets him go and heads straight to Jesse's office where um, Jesse is dealing with a hack, but I'm sure that's unrelated. Yeah. Jesse is back at his job. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's the same job it, or yeah, it's they, a new they job. Yeah, they never say it. <laughs> and then it's he like, goes fully off the grid again, so who knows? Exactly. Like, he just has a job mm-hmm. and it's there. And it's like, we understand what the job is because we know of his past and like what he would get hired to do. Mm-hmm. I really love the way that everyone in the episode just has a life. Mm-hmm. I love the time skip. I love time skips in television. You're one of the few people who does. I do too. No, I love time skips because it means that you get to do a great episode that's about table setting again mm-hmm. of like, it's suddenly you get to do a whole episode that's just like, this is where these people are now. I love that. If, if done well, then I agree. I'm split on time skips. But in any case, Sam explains what happens. And Jesse's like, you know, that reminds me of an Aussie guy who came in. And then right after he left, we got hacked. I wonder if it's the same guy. So then they call Fee, who is mid-loading a beanbag round, uh, to say, hey, have you met this, seen this guy? And she's like, I don't know, but I'm in the middle of something. And she is doing some bounty hunting with her new boo, Carlos. Carlos? Who's very hot. Good for Fee. I, I, there was a part of me that wondered if this was going to happen, and it didn't cease to make it hurt like a beanbag shot to the chest. I'm like, I'm good, like, good for her, but also... Devastating. I mean, devastating, but also at the same time, like, I don't know. I think, it's not that I don't think Carlos looks hot. I don't think he looks particularly hot. I think he looks hot. I think he's fine. It's almost, you get the sense with Carlos, the sense that I get with, like, every other guy that she dates that's not Michael, which is, like, this is a nice boy to have around. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But he like, deserves that. Because, no, like, Michael no, has, she definitely deserves that. has one too many times jerked her around about, like, a real commitment. And hit, like, commitment professionally to being in the same place and being on the same page. And, you know, there wasn't a conversation that we saw them have about, you know, right what would happen. He didn't, we didn't see him ask her to wait, and I don't think he would have. And it, it is still a little sad that she didn't. And this guy is so integrated into the gang that, like, you know, he knows everything about Michael Weston. He's willing to throw down with Sam and Jesse. And I like that they treat him like we, we they are all a unit again, the four yeah. of them. So it's interesting. And it makes next week, which we'll talk about next week, extra devastating. But yeah, I do like that Fee is back to bounty hunting. I really like that Fee's back to bounty hunting. Like, that was something we haven't really seen her do since season one. And that was one of our the best episodes of season one was Fee doing some bounty hunting. No, and I, I think what's really great about having this time skip is I think it's very revealing of character of like who all these people are if Michael Weston is not in the picture. Because like Michael Weston is such a like totalitizing force and mm-hmm. like he steamrolls everything. Yeah. Like and everyone kind of bends to his like will and his morality and his like And his plans. nonsense. Yeah. So it's like it's, it's nice to look at this moment and see, like, who are these people without Michael? Who are these people if, like, they don't have this person in their life anymore? Like, who are they at their core, really? Mm-hmm. And I think that's really fun. I like seeing Sam... Actually get to be retired. Sam is, like, yeah. <laughs> Sam is, like, a retired boy toy of a rich woman. I love like, it. Like, Jesse is, like, a guy who's just doing his job. Because mm-hmm, he's know? too young to retire. <laughs> exactly. And, like... Who's like works hard but like works to live, mm-hmm. and Fee is a bounty hunter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's still kind of doing the thing that they always did, but in a more regularly getting paid way. Right. 
you know, they find bad guys and they deliver them to justice. So Fee agrees to meet up with them at Carlitos because they didn't tell her that what they called her about was related to Michael. And she's kind of upset that they brought her in on this. And they're like, no, Fee, we're, it seems like Michael's in danger, but we know that's not your problem. What we need you to do is just go keep an eye on Madeline. Because as you know, Madeline's been having a tough time and she's got her custody hearing coming up for Charlie. Charlie, if you'll remember, Nate's son. And apparently Ruth, remember Ruth? is an addict and fell off the wagon and is now in rehab. Yeah. Did yeah. we know Ruth was an addict? I don't know. But like the way that everyone talks about Ruth, the way that Fee talks about Ruth, it's just like, that woman shouldn't have a child. Like they like, they hate Ruth so much. I mean, they hated her when they met her the one time. I like, know. But like, it's so funny <laughs> how much they just hate this woman for no good reason. Mm-hmm. Like they just like loathe her. Well, I mean, she apparently put her son in some level of danger to the extent that there is a legitimate custody hearing. I mean, yeah, but it's also just like, why? Yeah, Bernadette fucking hates Ruth. There was never a single moment where we were like, Ruth's fine. It's like, no, Ruth is the worst person we've ever met. Anytime we need her to be bad, we'll just add a new thing that she's bad about. Right, like, this is the only person for Nate Weston. I mean... The actual worst woman, whoever. <laughs> but, like, this is the thing, right? Is that, like, she's not, like, the actual worst woman on the show. Like, we've met so many women, women that are worse than her. Mm-hmm. Like, she's just, like, everyone's kind of annoyed by her. And, like, now she's, like, an addict or what all this stuff. Like, mm-hmm. she's so, like, pathetic and sad now. She and, like, is in rehab, though. Like, I feel like it would be, they'd have a better ground if she wasn't in rehab, if she was, like, refusing to go to rehab. Like, uh, presumably, the, the act of being in rehab is a good sign? Yeah, if, like, you don't want to just be misogynist to this woman. Which yeah, the show right. wants to do. That's true. That's true. That's true. This is like, everyone's like, this is the woman that we're allowed to hate. We all want to hate a woman. Even like all of the other women want to hate a woman. Mm-hmm. Like we all want to hate women, but like we have to find a woman that it's okay to hate. Ruth. And it's Ruth. <laughs> Ugh, the only woman that Nate Weston would ever be good enough for. Okay. So back in the DR, Burke is testing Michael to work under challenging conditions, sending him to set charges at a security firm quote, the Latin American Blackwater, with basically no intel but what they can see through the binoculars. Burke's lackey Pablo, uh, who used to work for the Latin American Blackwater, will come in with Michael and help him once they've snuck inside as, like, janitors. Back at Madeline's house, Carlos is being very cute and playing with Charlie, which I like. I like that he is so integrated in the group that not only does he do jobs with them and seems pretty right or die, but also he's, like, a very good influence on Michael's nephew. Right. This was a sweet little detail that they don't make mention of. He's just, like, playing with Charlie while yeah. Madeline and Fee talk. It's like the grown-ups are talking, the boys are playing. Yeah, no, it is. It's um, very domestic. It is very domestic. I will say, like, Carlos seems fine. Like, I don't feel like he is a character that's given a lot of interiority. Oh, or, no, not like, at all. He is the guy Fee is with when Michael's not around. Exactly, which I think, like... But I like the little details that are like, he's not just, so, you know, he's he's not just some guy. No, like, like he is, yeah, he is fully integrated. He is part of the family now. Mm-hmm. And I like that. Yeah. I think, th- I mean, I, I hate it, obviously, but, but I like it. Cause I like it, yeah. Well, because like the thing with shows like this where there is an obvious end game couple is that whenever they're dating other people... Like, a lot of times shows lean into, like, this is a wrong kind of person. Or, like, which in, you know, is supposed to signal, like, well, this is why they need to be with the person they're meant to be with. And I appreciate when shows commit to the other non-endgame partners as still being good people. Yeah, but... Because then it doesn't make, like, Fee look foolish. Well, no, but oftentimes they do that in the way that they do it here, which is make them boring. I mean, but this is like, notice. Like, I don't have that high of expectations. I'm just glad that he's not, like, obviously shitty and, like, it makes Fee look worse by comparison. Because like, that does happen. No, no, that definitely is a thing that happens. Mm-hmm. Like, I think, like, that's the worst thing you can do. Mm-hmm. In my opinion, the second worst thing you can do is have them be boring. Like. But, I, I, I mean, he's boring, but at least he's, like, you know. Like, the boringness, like, signals that, like, He's not even worth thinking about. It's yeah. like, you know, it's not, we're not interested in this relationship. I don't, I don't want to watch scenes with like Fee and Carlos together, mm-hmm. not because I'm invested in the other relationship, but just because like, I don't know what that is. It's just right. like, it's boring. It's, mm-hmm. you know, like, but like, I like it when. Real love looks boring, Chris. That's the thing, right? That's the narrative that that 
is, you know? I mean, as someone who's been in a relationship for nine yeah. years, our relationship is pretty boring. I mean, yeah. You've been around know. us. We're very boring. No, you're very boring. But yeah, no, it is sort of interesting that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but like... All I'm saying is I'm glad they didn't denigrate Fee no. in service of this plot point that is specific to making Michael feel bad. Right. No, of course. It's like, I find in things like this, wherein I find it really boring... Oh, no, you're totally where right. Like, when you have a thing where there's one couple that's obviously an end game, mm-hmm. like, if the guy doesn't have, if the other guy has nothing to him, if the Baxter has nothing to him, mm-hmm. like, every scene with them together, every scene that he is in is just biding time. It's just, like, treading water. Well, the danger of, just to talk about this trope a little bit longer. The danger of making him too unboring and in positive ways is that the the audience gets so invested in the side relationships that we actually don't really like or we fail to earn the endgame couple. No, I think that's the thing. I think that is what you have to do though. Like I think like I like in but, order but, for me to like buy like the love triangle aspect of it, mm-hmm. I have to like put myself in the headspace of the person who's making the choice. Mm-hmm. If it's like if I can't understand why the person is having a difficult time making the choice, then all of the drama is inert. Well, it, but the drama isn't about her choosing. The drama is about Michael being in pain. I know, but I don't care about that. I want the drama to be about her choosing. That's fair. That's, like, more agency. That's more, like, feeling sad that, like, the person that you're in love with is with someone else is, like, very is a very potent but also a very static emotion. Well, but he also, he did this to her. No, he did. No, I know I understand. So it's like his choices led her into another man's arms. Yeah, I'm what I'm saying is that like it makes for like it's emotionally There's nowhere, else you, can go There's with nowhere that. else you can go with it like you can't like plot with that. Like, I don't like That's fair. That, that's not story. It's like it's like static. There's not, you know, I'm not whereas like with Fee, if like Fee is like genuinely really into this person and we understand why and we understand like her headspace, like then, like, any scene that I'm watching with her and Carlos and with her and Michael, like, has more of a layer because I understand what's in her head. Because, like, right now, like, like I get why she wouldn't want to be with Michael right now. Mm-hmm. Like, but, like... But you don't know why she'd be with Carlos instead? Exactly. Or, like, it seems like she's just, like, biding her time. And, like, it's fine, but that's, like, it's not as compelling if, like, I can see the thing that she sees in him, which I don't quite see. That's fair. Yeah, I'm curious what else we're going to get from Carlos in upcoming episodes. But anyways, so so as Carlos is playing with Charlie, um, Fee is, is like, loading and unloading a gun, and Madeline's mad at her because she's like, I quit smoking because they might do a home visit soon, and I didn't want them to find cigarettes when they were deciding if I could, like, take Charlie for good. Um, and Fee's like, it's just for a little while it's fine then jesse finally calls fee with a name and a possible location that he and sam are going to go check out to find this dude that's been that's been using various accents and uh is trying to figure out what's going on with michael madeline did they tell madeline i don't remember did they tell like did they tell her any specifics they told her that like someone was looking for michael i don't know how much because it almost feels like they should have like let her in on the information because of what happens in, like, two scenes. I mean, it's unclear. The way that Madeline plays this makes it very clear, like, she fucked up. Mm-hmm. Like, she plays the scene like, I fucked up. Mm-hmm. And I think that, like, if she had been kept in the dark more, then, like, the emotion that you would be playing is, why didn't you tell me? Mm-hmm. I needed that information. Right. Look what happened. So, like, the way that it is so much played as, like, her personal fuck-up mm-hmm. makes me think that she has a decent idea of what's going on. Yeah, and that I and find it's... a little bit irritating because, like, we've come so far with Madeline, and that seems like such a basic thing to not fuck up. But I think, like, yes. I get it because these are high stakes. Yeah, it's, like, it's one of those things where it's, like, I buy that, like, it's Charlie. Mm-hmm. Like, even though we've seen him exactly twice? No, yeah, totally. But, like, I buy that, like, this is such, this is so important to her. Mm -hmm. Like, and she really, really needs it to happen. The way that it's done, I buy it. I I, buy it. I don't, I feel like there is a slightly better way for it to have gone down. Maybe if, like, she was already on thin ice with CPS, you know? Like, if I felt the stakes, because, like, Charlie's literally already living with her. 
It's not like they, he's in foster care and she like really needs to get him out or something. I feel like we just needed one more detail I don't know. to establish it, the stakes of getting Charlie. See, the thing was, it was unclear to me watching the episode. It felt like the way that they were playing it, it made it seem like it was unlikely almost. Or like, Did I don't it? know. I don't know. Like the way, it certainly wasn't playing it like it was a formality. No, it definitely wasn't playing it as a formality, but I also like, don't think they were playing it as close to the line as her fucking up this badly with the amount of information that we know she had. Like, I don't know. Like, it is this thing, right? Wherein, because also there's a little bit her making a choice there. Um, I don't think she does. I don't know. But yeah, no, I think she's it just felt so a little weird. regressive without enough stakes to like justify it. I, it was close for me. I don't know. There was just like literally one other detail would have happened. I think like, I don't know. I watched it and I remember I was watching the scene and being like, Madeline's being a little dumb here, but also I buy the stakes. I don't know. It's one of those things where it's like, I intellectually I buy them. I didn't emotionally buy them. Where it was one of those situations where it's like, I don't know what it's like to like possibly be losing custody of a child mm -hmm. and it's one of those things where it's like i can like follow the emotions of this even if i don't have subjective experience of them enough that it quite like they're not doing a lot of work mm -hmm. to make it to fully put us in madeline's place in that moment like in the same way that they're not doing enough work to put us in fees place in like other moments mm -hmm. but it was one of those things but i understand the situation that fee is in more than i understand the situation that Madeline's mm -hmm. in. And so when it's a thing like that, where it's like, it to me, I'm like, yeah, it's odd that she doesn't really peg this guy. Mm -hmm. I don't even think about that. I, I think it's like, I, I, I just, I don't know. Like I, it was a little sloppier than it. You been. also don't like it in media when characters' behavior is influenced by their emotions. No, I like it when they're influenced by their emotions. If I watch the emotional stakes happen, don't just say, oh, Charlie might get taken away. It's like, okay, what is what are the stakes to that? Like, it's where also, would Charlie go out, uh, elsewhere? What was Charlie's situation it, before? I How does, you know? I think also one of the things that's really the emotional cornerstone for all of this is that, like, Michael's gone... Nate's gone. This is this, her last... This is literally it. This but I don't like, feel that. I feel her being, like, agitated that Fia has a gun and it's no, like, I don't get I, to smoke anymore. See, I don't know. I buy from her, like, Sharon Glass, I buy that she's like, this is it. That Charlie, Charlie is it. I, I again, intellectually buy it. I wish they had shown rather than told. Me. I don't know. I feel like I get it from her performance. I think, like... The script does not give us enough, mm -hmm. but I think Sharon Glass gives us enough. I think Sharon Glass gives us five-sixths of what I need. Maybe. I can see that. It works for me, but I get it. Yeah, and, and I, I get what you're saying, too. It's not to say that I'm like, oh, this was so stupid. I'm like, yeah, intellectually, all the pieces are put together in a place where I have full empathy and sympathy for what she has gone through and the fact that she fucks up. However, given all that we've done in Burn Notice up till now, I don't know. You said that like, she's being annoyed feels really desperate to me. There's a desperation to her performance in this episode. Mm. And um, maybe I just missed some of yeah. the subtleties while I was taking notes. Yeah, that's so, true. Like, yeah, know, there's there's also that. But regardless, anyway, it's fine. It's fine. It works okay. Yeah, it's not it, the best thing ever. It works fine. Sharon Glass is an amazing actress. Yes, we, 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 we stand a queen. Yeah. So back in DR, Michael and Pablo get into position as janitors, but there is a problem at the door to the room where they're supposed to, like, get through to place the charges, which is that Pablo, who, again, used to work here, has the wrong code. So Pablo is like, all right, I want to shoot a garden and get the codes. And Michael's like, we have, like, a minute and a half. Let me do this. And so Michael improvises a better and less bloody solution to get them in the door, but it means that they're going to have to come out hot. Burke covers them from outside. Um, and while they are escaping after setting the charges, successfully Pablo gets shot but Michael gets him to safety back in Miami at the mysterious dude's house with a and the thing about Pablo too is that Burke loves Pablo oh yeah like, that was something that was very interesting to me and I'm curious when that will come back around because yeah in this episode that's a good point that I forgot to mention is yeah Burke is like Pablo's a good man like <laughs> no like he keeps alluding to stuff it's like no pa Pablo I trust Pablo with my life Pablo is like done some noble shit. Pablo is a man of honor. You will respect Pablo. Yeah, because I think Michael is like, I don't know this chuckle fuck. Like, I'll go in alone. He's like, no, Pablo is coming with you. Pablo is the only man I've ever let into my bed. I mean, my heart. I mean, both. 
Michael's like, did you say bo- both with an L? <laughs> I haven't heard from Whoopslinger in a while. Whoopslinger, if you're out there, send us a missive. I miss you. So, yeah, but at, back at the mysterious dude's house in Miami, the guy whose accent we have not ascertained yet, Sam and Jesse do some snooping, determine he's not home, but then as they start to break in, they almost blow themselves to Kingdom Come because of a rigged Claymore mine, but Jesse like catches it right as they're about to trigger it. So Sam has to stay perfectly still holding the door because they aren't 100% sure what triggered the mine, but they do know whatever, like anything that changes, we will get blown up. And great sequence. Great sequence. So well done. Mm-hmm. Very fun. They're doing the classic Sam and Jesse bit where they're like sniping at each other. God, it's so great. I love everything so much. Yeah, everything about this whole sequence and not just in this, like, but in like later scenes in the same sequence. So good. Kobe Bell is so good. He's so good. Like this whole time I'm like, Kobe, I want to give you comedies. Give you, co- oh my God. Kobe Bell is so good and so hot. <laughs> like, God, no, the bit we're like, so like he turns to Claymore Mine. Wait, no, no, that's later in the, the we haven't gotten to that yet. Let me, oh. let me, let me go in chronological cool. order. Cause that's what I'm saying is like this whole sequence, not just this specific it's intercut, scene. Right? Yeah. yeah it's okay, intercut. Cool. Okay. So, so yeah. So all they know at this point is Sam has, Sam has got his hand on the doorknob and it has partially opened a door and they can see a Claymore Mine pointing at them inside. And they're like, fuck, <laughs> we got to figure this out so we don't die. At Madeline's custody meeting, she learns that a new person has been assigned to her case. And as we've been talking about, it's, it's the guy, it's the mysterious guy. And basically he manipulates her into revealing that Michael is working for the CIA still. And she doesn't have any details, but that's not what he's asking about. He basically just wants to know, is Michael still in the CIA? And she does in fact confirm he is. So back with him and Jesse, uh, we learn that Claymore mines are directional. And so right now the direction is the door. So uh, Jesse sort of like tentatively pokes it as much as he can to kind of like change the direction. And um, then he's like, okay, so then on the count of three, you'll let go to the door and dive away. But before Jesse starts counting, do you want to feel this part or do you want me to? No, it's amazing. Like it's he's so like, good. He's like, okay, well, don't do it yet. And then he like kind of like tiptoes, walks away and then like, hides behind like a pile of wood or whatever. Yeah, he like basically gets around the corner, like as far away from the mine as possible. And then <laughs> Sam's like, what the fuck? And then he like, he's like, wait, hang on. And he crouches further. Yeah, like, and he says like, someone's got to take you to the hospital if this goes bad. <laughs> and like, he just like hides amazing bit of physical acting from so Kobe good. Bell. And especially because it was like, two beats. It's not just that he got crouches behind. He then is like, no, I want to get further behind it. And he crouches further and then he sticks his hand up for a thumbs up and it's like, all right, go ahead now. It's so funny. It's so good. Oh this my God. A standout part of the episode for me. Totally. I was whooping. It was so funny to me. And of course, everything is fine. <laughs> it's fine. And inside they find a fake ID station. And this is where they learn like, oh, fuck, he's pretending to be a CSS agent. We got to call Madeline. And, um, you know, Madeline gets the call and is like, oh, fuck, I think I may have said too much. But I'm pretty sure this <laughs> the custody meeting went well. So back in the DR, Michael and Pablo drive by a police checkpoint. And as they're driving up to it, Pablo gets a call. And Michael's CIA sense tingles. And um, then Pablo reveals that his mom gave him up and that he's still in the CIA. And he's like, she's confused. And he's like, I don't think she is. And so then Michael, when they get up to the police checkpoint, like conspires to like put the, cause the guy's like holding a gun to him, like just go through the police checkpoint and then we'll handle this later. And Michael's like, "Mm, fuck you. And so they do a whole thing. He gets it so that like the checkpoint as he blows through it, shoots the side of the car that the guy, that Pablo Burke's only first and only love is shot dead. And then he flips the car and he escapes on foot. And so Pablo is now dead. Mm-hmm. This has been the life of Pablo. Yep. Uh, he meets with Burke later that night with a slightly different story. Like oh, Pablo was really brave and he died instantly. He didn't feel any pain, Burke. I promise you that. He and said your name. <laughs> the last words on his lips were. Uh, and Burke's like, all right, well. Thanks for the info. I'll be in touch in uh, like a little over 48 hours or something. He said like, he said, he said to me, he said, here, give this to Burke for me. And then he kissed me on the dick. (laughs) Uh, Oh yeah. The separate sort of the story that I didn't tell you was that my dick was out the whole time. Cause I was tempting him, you see, to make sure that he was true to you. And he was, he wasn't till his last breath. (laughs) 
So yeah, and Burke's like, all right, I'll be back. And he, he, he tells him something to the extent of like, you'll hear from me eventually, but definitely not in the next 48 hours. And this is important for next week because uh, the next day, the final scene is Michael meeting with his handler with Strongboy. And the Strongboy tells him that they got to head back to Miami, hopefully before Burke gets back in touch to take down the people asking questions about him so his cover doesn't get blown. Uh, but he's not allowed to tell anyone he's coming back and they have 48 hours before his cover is blown for good. So like, tighten up. We got to go kill this motherfucker who's asking questions about you. Get back here and finish the job. Not a, lot, not a lot of plot this week, actually. Like, it's, it's basically, we he, like, most of the first third of the episode is just setting up why he's in the Dominican Republic. Yeah. Then there's a bit of confusion about, like, why is someone asking questions in Miami about Michael? And then he does, like, one quick scene of a job, and Burke's like, cool, your audition has gone well. I will see you later. No, it's really just, like, a bunch of pretty long scenes. Mm-hmm. Of just, like, tension. Mm-hmm. And it was good. I mean, no, it was directed yeah, well. I no. was excited the whole time. No, I really like that. I like the way that, like, it's so tense and just, like, mm-hmm. and there's just enough plot to hang all of these scenes on. And it works really well. Yes. Steven Sergic. I'm telling you, give him a movie. Has he done movies before? I don't know if he has. He's done a lot of TV. He hasn't really done that many movies, if any. Let me check. One I second. want Candy 2007 is not marked as TV. So that's probably a Miss movie. Miami TV movie, but that's also kind of a pilot. Yeah. Weapons of Mass. So he's done TV movies. And I want Candy. With I don't, I'm trying to remember. Carmen Electra, Tom Burke, and Tom Riley. Carmen Electra and two guys named Tom. Two film students with no experience nor money want to make a film that can only get financing for a porn film with porn star Candy. No, no, he's mostly done TV. Mm-hmm. I really think, like, he should do movies. Yeah, he should. I think he'd be very good at it. Uh, anyways, so, moving on to spy tips. Number one, connecting a motion sensor in your apartment to a porch light can protect your home and protect your identity. It's also a good idea to find a place you can get into without using the front door. Most people don't go looking for second floor apartments with windows facing an alley, but in a pinch, there's nothing like it. Good tip. I like the set. Mm-hmm. I also like that he used like a great uh, kind of like a section of the fence that had kind of been yeah. falling apart as a ladder. Right. Thought that was cute. A great G-R-A-T-E. Great. Mm-hmm. I think it was a piece of the fence. That yeah, it's like a piece of fencing or something. Yeah. And it's just like, but you know, he's kind of in a slummy area. So exactly. like if it's broken down, that's fine, but he's using it specifically. And like he's, yeah, and he's got this other thing with the, the light that he's rigged. Mm-hmm. And that looks really cool. That's just a good piece of visual storytelling, totally, too. Totally. The light. Yeah, it's just flickering. So when he comes home, the it's like starting to get dark and a light is flickering, which means someone's in his apartment. I was like, that's fucking elegant. That's it really is. good. It's so good. That's really good. Yeah, and it's visual. Yeah, great tip, Matt. Number two, smuggling anything into a secure building is all about misdirection. You can't keep alarms going off or dogs from barking, but you can mask why it's happening. A metal detector can't differentiate between a Smith and Weston 45 and a steel-sided floor polisher. The same way a bomb-sniffing German Shepherd doesn't know the difference between the smell of C4 and nitrogen-based fertilizers. Uh, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, specific enough. Yeah, totally. All right, number three, C4 is the most popular military explosive mainly because it's extremely stable. That's great if safety is your main concern, but not so great if you're short a detonator. When you have to improvise, a primary explosive like mercury fulminate mixed with gunpowder can provide the energy needed to set off a chunk of C4, provided you can get them in place without blowing your hand off. Yeah, also good. Also specific. That's the yeah. second in a episode in a row I think because we last season that yeah, we had like a C four specific and talks about how stable C four is, mm-hmm. yeah, and kind of how you can mess with it. Yeah, it's neat. All right, number four, an easy way to tell if a house is occupied is to monitor the electricity out usage with a non-contact voltage meter. You can do a quick check of the breaker box to see if anyone's got lights on. Once you're at the structure, the next step is getting in. The same portable voltage tester you use to measure electrical usage can also detect electrical currents, which means if you get close to your target's doors and windows, you can tell if he's got an active alarm system with a wave of your hand. Of course, just because they don't have an alarm system doesn't mean you don't have to worry about less conventional forms of security. Yeah, no, also good. Also good. Yeah, yeah. I'm into it. There was, there was like, I think, seven total voiceover moments. And uh, this final n- tip number five, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But, like, it was a tight episode in terms of no, spy totally. tips. So, number five. Claymore mines are one of the most lethal anti-personnel devices in existence. The shrapnel inside can rip through the wall of a house and still be deadly up to 200 meters. But because a claymore is a directional charge, most of the blast is repelled forward, which means if disarming isn't an option, being behind it when it goes off is the next best thing, as long as you have adequate cover. Which, thankfully, Jesse has. 
No, totally. Yeah. I didn't know that claymores were uh, directional? directional. I did not either. So useful. I didn't know that like claymores were like really bad. <laughs> I mean, no, I it, mean like as in terms of mines, mm-hmm. like I knew it was a kind of mine, mm-hmm. and I know that all mines are bad, mm-hmm. but like it's like a specific specifically especially bad mine mm-hmm. all right so that's that's five practical spy tips that's five very practical very spy and those very were tips. really the only ones in the yeah. episode thank goodness so all right we have at least five practical spy tips did we solve the problem of the week <laughs> with spycraft over violence was there a problem um i mean he used spycraft to get into the building to place yeah. the mines yeah he improvised instead of using violence to get into a place once they encountered a problem sam and jesse and fee no, you there's know. definitely Spycraft, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, no alias, unless you count the alias of Michael Weston Burnout. And I he mean, does commit to that alias. No, I he commits to it in the privacy of his own apartment where no one's watching him. Here's the thing. I could give it to them for this. Really? I, like, I would not argue, argue for it strenuously, but if you argued for it, I would accept it. I mean, he does commit. He commits to, like, fully embodying... His worst, you know, his basest impulses. Here's the thing. That beard. The beard The is beard very makes good. it a character. Mm-hmm. And, like, yeah, he's living that character. And, like, the character is also him. But, like, I think that makes it interesting. Like, I think, like, there's something really interesting to, like, this version of Michael Weston. Mm-hmm. And he it has is to, like, him. play himself, but, like, more pathetic. Yeah. I, you know what? It's season seven. Yeah, it's season seven. Let's do it. All right. Yeah, so technically, is. we've already got it, but to, you know, for the purposes of scientific inquiry, we have to go through all of these. We're at least two supporting characters used well. Does Fee get to blow something up? She, she blows up my heart. She does blow up my heart. She doesn't get to be pro protagonist no. for Sherzy's, but does she blow something up? I don't think so. I think she's with Madeline the whole yeah, time. Yeah, she's with Madeline. She's, just, yeah. Yeah, I don't think she actually does anything. Nope. We only see her in like two scenes. Okay. Was Sam Peak Bruce Campbell? He was uh, living his best boy toy life and being really very was. overdramatic about, like, this is an espionage mission. Has Elsa seen the cake? Yeah, great. Yeah. No. Also, he was mad at... His, his whole scene with Jesse was very peak Bruce Campbell. No, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Peak 100%. Bruce Campbell, 100%. Jesse, is he a distinct addition rather than a redundancy? 100% yes. Yes. Michael would have had... Michael would have been like, all right, Sam, I'm going to get you out of this, I promise. You know, maybe Michael would have even taken over the mantle of, like, holding it or something. Like, Michael would have been so much less fun. <laughs> no, exactly. Like, that would not be a comedy scene if Michael was there. Like, that is... One, like, yeah, this is what Jesse is for. Yes, and we love him for it. So, yeah, that's already two characters. But finally, does Madeline get to do the case of the week or have a genuine emotional moment with another character? I mean, yeah. Yeah, I think so. Totally. No, I I love her performance when she realizes what has happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She, like, fucking kills it. Mm-hmm. Like, the thing is that, like, the moment when she realized what's happening, I can read 100% of her trauma on mm-hmm. her face. Yeah. Like, no, yeah, once it happens, I'm, like, I'm I'm fully with her, I'm fully engaged. No, totally. And I think maybe that's part of it mm-hmm. that, like, lets me backfill some of the emotion up to that point. It's like, fair. watching the, like, pure shock on her face there, it's just like, oh, yeah, you have, you were, like, the most traumatized person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, scenes don't happen in a vacuum. We have to right. take the entire episode in context. No, totally. Yeah, no, she, she was great. So three out of four characters were used well. Yeah. So, and then f- technically four out of four criteria were upheld. Exactly. Uh, even if we didn't argue for the alias one, which I think I, I feel comfortable doing, right. this still would have been a great episode of Burn Notice, the final season premiere of... Of Open, all time. Exactly. Opens with a great episode of Burn It sure does. And there was a yogurt. And our first yogurt, yogurt in 13 episodes. Now, it's, all of that being said. It's so funny, too, because I talked about how this feels so far from where the show started. And, like, how much, like, there's no case of the week. There's no client. Mm-hmm. There's none of the stuff that, like, in the beginning you might have said was, like, core, cr- burn core to Burn Notice. Mm-hmm. Which I think really reveals how like, smart our criteria are, Mm -hmm. because, like, it would have been very easy to say it's it's not burned out if there's not a client or something like that, but, like, it really shows, like, how 
at this moment in their last season, they know the appeal of bird notice, mm-hmm. and it is these things. Yeah, and it's not limiting them. Because, like, I remember at the very beginning of this, you posited that, like, to be great, it couldn't be a great episode of Burn Notice. No, and I think we have fully oh, dispensed have, with that. We have fully dispensed with that. Which now begs the question, is this a great episode of television? I, I think it might be. I think it might be as well. Here's the thing. I can't think of any reason why it's not. Yeah, me and either. And I really enjoyed watching it. Like, it all hangs together. I think it all, all the emotions play. Mm-hmm. Like, all of, like, all of the, like, setup works really well. Mm-hmm. Like, all the characters feel like characters. Yeah. I think that's actually, when I talk about what I want from a great episode of television, I need the characters to feel like characters. And so, not, like, plot devices. Exactly. Or, like programmatic people that sort of stand in have have emotions that stand in for character sure but aren't really character mm-hmm. like no but everyone feels like a character in this at all yeah i would say this is a great episode of television yeah i would too especially given it is a season premiere which as we have previously yeah. established is sort of like a a separate kind of thing but exactly. even without that yeah i think it hangs together well i think it was exciting and tense and dramatic and emotional and despite the fact that we're so excited to talk about next week next week i was not unhappy with the way that this final season started no again this episode made me really excited for this season mm-hmm. because of like the conflicts and the plot that it sets up or just because of the skill of the emotions and just because of the skill like because of the thing that i care about the least is burke like that seems like a, that's, <laughs> oh yeah he's only in all... three episodes okay cool yeah so this is like and the only reason i know that and i didn't want to spoil it for myself was because i was like they were talking about him like he's from michael's past and i was like wait have we seen him before because i've seen adrian pastor in so many procedurals i was like did we have an episode with him previously but no. No, we didn't. Oh, yeah. Once again, it's a person from Michael's past who we've literally never met. Yeah, no. So it's not like I'm super on board for Michael on the CIA stuff, right. whatever. But like just the skill and the craft that's on display in this episode, mm-hmm. like really made me like invested in it. Yeah, me too. All right. Yeah. Well, we are uh, starting on a high note with this final season of Burn Noticed. And as a result, there is nothing left for us to do but say thank you again to Vincent E.L. for our theme music. Find more of Vince's music at vincentel.bandcamp.com. And until next week, next week, bye. We'll talk about next week, next week. <laughs>